add my welcome to you all this morning, this Christmas week. Good to have you worshiping together with us. And uh, I do want to invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices, as it were, to uh, John chapter 20. We started, we started this journey through John's biography of Jesus one year ago today. It was the it's Christmas Sunday, and um, our journey through this gospel, God willing, will come to a close next Sunday. Now, um, my plan is uh, to draw your attention to more of our text in just a moment, but for now, I'm going to read just one verse, one verse, John chapter 20, and verse 19. And before I read it, just to get the situation here, it's now three days since Jesus was crucified. His disciples are together in a room. We can can only imagine uh, their mindset and emotions probably blown away by what has happened, disoriented, bereaved. Certainly they were overwhelmed with fear, uncertain as to what to do next, probably wondering if they'll ever get out of that city alive. And then, suddenly and unexpectedly, this happens. John chapter 20, verse 19, please follow along. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The very first words that the crucified and risen Christ speaks to his disciples are, Peace be with you. Sounds like such a... a, Simple greeting, but friends, it is much more than a simple greeting. Much, much more. Jesus was, in fact, saying something entirely new, an entirely new reality was now existing. Jesus was, in these words, communicating something, imparting something. Completely new, and that's what we are going to focus on this morning. But first, let's pray together. Father in heaven, all that uh, this Christmas season holds out the realities of things that we repeat and do year after year. It is possible for um, tradition to become old hat. It's possible that um, familiar truth, familiar message could become old hat. And God forbid that the precious news of a Savior born, a precious Savior living a perfect life, a precious Savior dying a sin-atoning death, 
precious Savior rising from the dead. God forbid that this familiar story, this familiar truth would become old hat. We look to you, Lord, today and to the work of your Holy Spirit to make alive this truth. Make living this word. We look to you to open the eyes of our hearts. We look to you to awaken us. And we pray that uh, there would just be a fresh effect, a fresh appreciation, a fresh celebration of all that you have done for us in this person and great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. It was, um, <clears throat> it was during my doctoral studies on the theme of redemptive leadership that I came across a biography of Abraham Lincoln entitled Lincoln's Melancholy. And the, uh, the focus of this biography was on, it, it was on Lincoln's melancholic personality. Um, might come as a surprise that he was somewhat of an Eeyore. Um, having a similar temperament, temperament type myself that tends to view life through a darker tint. I just devoured the book um, for the sake of my own self-understanding as well as exploring how such a, what, what to me seemed like such a limiting factor as I considered my own life and leadership, such a limiting factor might actually be a contributor to one's leadership effectiveness. And so in Lincoln's case, sadness was something he carried with him his entire adult life. Now, his melancholy was something that uh, certainly was heightened during the years that he served as our nation's president, and especially as he presided over the, the great and terrible Civil War. Lincoln's friends and advisors would often comment on his gloominess, this emotional cloud, dark cloud that seemed to, um, he seemed to carry with him. And of course, there were times during his adult life when there would be these uh, moments, periods of relief and respite. But by and large, uh, Abraham Lincoln's adult years were characterized by what his friends observed to be a, quote, great sadness, unquote. In fact, one of his colleagues wrote about him, no element of Mr. Lincoln's character was so marked and so obvious, and so ingrained as his mysterious and profound melancholy. Another colleague described his melancholy as dripping from him even as he walked. I, I, I'm not that bad. <laughs> But early in April of 1865, after Lincoln had returned from a tour of uh, Richmond, Virginia, and the 
front, the war front, and after news of General Robert E. Lee's surrender had reached him, he returned, and people were struck by the change that had taken place in the president. One of his cabinet members wrote at that time, that incredible sadness which had previously seemed to be an unbreakable element of his very being had been suddenly exchanged for an equally indescribable expression of serene, peaceful joy. As if he was conscious that the great purpose of his life had been achieved. Lincoln's wife commented just a few days later, I never saw him so supremely cheerful. So Abraham Lincoln was at peace in April of 1865 because something had happened. Some objective reality had changed. The terrible war was coming to an end. The Union had been preserved. And on April 11, after Lee's surrender, Lincoln addressed a crowd on the White House lawn. And he told them, this is what he said on that day. We meet today not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. And that gladness of heart, that that peacefulness that was now characterizing Abraham Lincoln was based on the fact that, and and listen, this this is really crucially the point, it was based on the fact that something objective had changed. Wasn't just his resolve, wasn't just him gritting his teeth and I'm going to buck up and do better and be positive. Because something objective had shifted. And and however, as great as the issues were being played out on the national scale at that time, and the peace that Lincoln felt uh, in early April of 1865 was significant, it was temporary. It was a temporary peace. It was a peace having to do with the things of this world, It was a peace having to do with relationships among people. And for Lincoln, it did not last long. Personally, for him, it did not last long. It just lasted for a few days as his own life would be taken by an assassin named John Wilkes Booth barely a week later. As great as the issues of peace are among men, And as earnestly and as passionately as people may call out for peace between people, there is a more fundamental longing, a more fundamental need for all humankind. And it is that need that occupies every individual human heart. It is the fundamental need and longing to be at peace with God. There is a deep unrest, a deep unsettledness, a deep lack of peace that characterizes the human heart. St. Augustine famously captured it so well in his confessions when he expressed in prayer, God, we were made for you and our hearts are 
restless until they find their rest in you. The human heart is restless. It's roaming. It's unsettled. It's anxious. And throughout this sermon series on John's gospel, we have referred to it in terms like soul thirst or heart hunger. The human heart, fundamentally and by nature, is not at peace. That's what characterizes humankind as a whole. That's what we share in common. It's what we have in common with every individual person born into this world. And if you still question that or doubt that or wonder, eh, maybe that's not so true, you will you just wait till this coming Tuesday night or Wednesday afternoon or sometime this coming week when you find how remarkably brief of, of amount of time it takes for attention and satisfaction over all those Christmas gifts to turn bland. It's because the state, that's the state of the human heart. There is a longing for, there is a looking for peace that is not of this world. People want peace. And of course, people would love for there to be national peace. Oh my. People would love for there to be world peace. But the real longing of the human heart is for personal peace. And so we look for things. We look for things that hold out the promise of providing peace. And we look for it in all sorts of places, all forms of escape and distraction whether it's leisure or work, whether it's relationships or solitude, whether it's achievements or more stuff. But, but there is no real hope for peace in those things. No, there's no life, ultimately, in those things. And there is certainly no real enduring peace there. It, and so it brings to mind um, the words of the prophet Jeremiah who said, people are going about saying, peace, 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 but there's no peace. Not, that is, until something real happens. Not until some real change takes place. And so you see, there, there is a real situation between humankind and God, and that situation is the reason for the absence of peace. And then only when that situation is addressed, only when that situation is changed, only when that situation is resolved, is peace, real, soul satisfying peace possible. So you can't just decide to have it. You can't just choose to. Be at peace. You can't just take a pill and experience this peace. You can't just engage in some relaxation exercise and have this peace. You can't just get away and have this peace. Real peace, the kind of peace for which our hearts hunger, is based on something happening. It's based on some objective change in the relationship between us and God. Peace is a product 
Peace is a result of something. Peace comes when something has happened. And in this case, it is not some reconciliation between human parties, but rather a reconciliation between us and God. Now, I want to draw your attention to this today on this Sunday before Christmas because Christmas is really the start of what happened, of that objective change that took place in order that we might have peace with God. Now, there is, uh, oh, there's so much, 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 much more that we could give attention to in the entirety of John chapter 20, but instead, on just that, namely, what, what has happened which is the basis for experiencing personal peace with God. And in order to do that, I'm going to draw your attention to, for lack of better terms, maybe three aspects or three steps. Another way of thinking about it would be that maybe three acts in a drama. And act one or step one is the fact of peace promised. Peace promised. And the scene is a grassy hillside outside the little town of Bethlehem. It's nighttime. Use your imagination now. Take yourself there. Sky is dark. Stars are thick. You know the way they're thick when you're out and about far away from city lights on a camping trip and all you see is just massive stars. And from this hillside, you can see the little town down below and uh, the outline of some of the buildings. There might be a candle or a lamp uh, or two flickering in a window here and there. And in that little town somewhere, perhaps right on the outskirts, there's a young couple. And uh, both of them are utterly exhausted. Both of them are nervously watching over a tiny little newborn baby that they have brought into the world. But outside this little town, out in an open field, keeping watch over their flocks on that night are some shepherds. And an angel appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and, and, and this is the, the important part, listen to what they say. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, let's make sure that we hear and understand these words rightly. Glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels are making announcement, an announcement that something has happened. Something is actually happening in Bethlehem, and the effect of what is happening is twofold. First effect is in heaven. In heaven, there is glory being given to God. On account of what's happening in the little town of Bethlehem, something is happening in heaven. God is going to get great glory. And the second thing, there's going to be an effect on earth. And on earth, the effect is that there are those, there are those upon whom God's favor will rest. And the effect for those on whom God's favor will rest, for them there will be peace. And we must not make the mistake here, it's a mistake that almost everybody makes at Christmas time, and that is thinking that this announcement of the angels is the promise of peace on earth, world peace. That's not what they're saying. This announcement is saying something else. It's saying that in heaven, the effect is that God will be glorified. He will be praised. And on earth, there will be an effect. On those people, for those people, on whom the favor and the pleasure of God rests, for them, specifically those people, the effect will be peace. Not world peace. World peace will come eventually, later, 700 years before that night in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah spoke about one who was coming and described him as the Prince of Peace. And of the Prince of Peace and of his government, there will be no end. Christ will establish a kingdom of unending peace. But the promise announced by the angels at the birth of Jesus is the promise of peace between God and man. It's different. And the angels are announcing something has happened which is going to bring about a new situation, an objective situation between God and man, a situation in which all of God's blessing, all of God's fullness, All of God's soul-satisfying fullness is going to be poured out and peace will come to those among whom He is pleased. Peace promised. But that favor and that blessing would not come without a cost. That peace would, would require a price, a great, great price. And so the second act, if you will, is peace purchased. And scene, the scene of Act 2 is also a hillside. But the situation is very, very different. And this time the hillside is outside the city of Jerusalem. And instead of nighttime, it is the heat of the day. And that child who was born in the little town of Bethlehem, 33 years earlier, is now a grown man. And he has been beaten. 
initially beaten across his back so that there are these red swollen stripes on him. And then he was more cruelly and brutally beaten again so that under that scourging implement, his flesh and blood and tissues are horribly torn and crushed. And so listen again now to the words of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years before, before that day, before that crucifixion day. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds were healed. Hear what Isaiah is saying? He was wounded, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He stood in our place. And why? To what end? It was in order to purchase peace for us. Jesus took on himself the punishment that we deserved. He gave his life so that we might be saved. There on the cross, he took away what stood between us and God so that we might be reconciled to God. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace with God. And at the end, at the end of that day on Calvary, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he wasn't saying, oh, thank God, it's finally over. What he meant was, thank God, it is now all taken care of. It is all accomplished. Situation has been changed. The way is now clear for us to be at peace with God. Real peace between men, women, and God is now, now available. And Jesus, now in John 20, triumphant in his resurrection, he is eager to speak that Peace. He is eager to communicate that peace to any individual, any individual, or any group of individuals who will turn to him and trust in him and believe on him. So there is this wonderful, 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 powerful picture of this objective reality now near the end of John's gospel. Let's, so let's go back now. John 19 and 20 is where we'll see Act worked out. Act 1, peace promised. Act 2, peace purchased. Now Act 3, peace imparted. I think I'm just going to read this scene for you. So follow along. I'm going to start with John chapter 19, verse 38. This is where we left off last week. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Here, here's a guy who's, who is an actual member of that, the very Jewish ruling council that was just so, they were so aggressively pursuing the death of Jesus. And yet here he is, a secret disciple, disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came 
and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed, was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, so imagine this day. Go back, you know, where the, the disciples shattered in shock, fearing of fearful of even going out. Where, where would they even go out to? So they're gathered in, in grief, they're gathered in fear. And then the Sunday morning, something happens. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John now speaking of himself, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So she's not just weeping here over Jesus' death. She's, she's weeping over the fact that his body... You know, the, the last connection that she has with Jesus. Some of you have been through that, the loss of a loved one. You know the, the emotional experience when the body is taken away. It's your last, that's the last real connection that you have. It, it's just piled on to the, to the rest of the emotions. And so she's, she's so shaken by it, she can't bear it, so you put herself in her place. She's standing there weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, it says, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two Angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had, been, had, been, had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. And, and it's at that moment Mary becomes aware. Um, senses somebody has approached behind her. In verse 14 it says, having said this. She turned around 
and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So here's Jesus. He's different, you know, in some un indefinable way, uh, so that she doesn't recognize him. And, and Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And, and she recognized him. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and they recognize his voice. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. It's, you know, it's possible that this is the same room where they had been with Jesus just three nights earlier. The room where he washed their feet, the room where the, they'd had supper together, the room where he had spoken to them such very, very significant, profound things. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, you know, I want to just, like, pause there. But Jesus barely gets those words out of his mouth, and he repeats them again. When he had said this, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So, so can you, you get this moment in your mind? Jesus has come in. He has spoken these words. Words that could be construed as such a simple greeting. Apparently it doesn't register with the disciples what he's trying to say and so he shows them his wounds that he received at the cross he shows them his his hands and he his side and as he's showing them he immediately says to them again peace be with you and then he says it again in verse 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Friends, these men had been with Jesus for the better part of three years. John has given us a very full, really a quite thorough account of everything. And nowhere in John's gospel are these words spoken this way until right now? These words, the first words that Jesus speaks after his death and resurrection are the communication. Listen, listen now. It's the communication of a new reality. It's the communication of an entirely new situation. Peace. Peace. Three times he says it. Peace be with you. It's as though to say, hey, look, I am imparting something. Something has happened. Things are different. 
What is it that he's saying? Well, this, this peace speaks of a well-being in the very fullest sense of the word. This peace gathers up all of the blessings of God. All the blessings that God intends toward his people. And Christ Jesus has brought this into this kind of peace. Into reality. Into being through his death and by his resurrection. This is the effect. This peace is the effect of his victory over sin by his death. This peace is the effect of his victory over death by his resurrection. Jesus is saying, this is what I bring to you. Real peace between you and God. The peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted to those who believe In Him. Christ speaks it to these disciples. Loved ones, from this point on, through the rest of Scripture, Christ speaks this word, these words, this word peace to us. He speaks it to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. You see it throughout the New Testament. Every New Testament letter letter, whether it's to Christians or to churches, whether it's addressed to individuals everywhere, it always says grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. It's just to say, don't forget this. Don't ever forget that when you put your trust in Christ, now you possess something. You possess grace and peace. Grace and peace are yours through The Lord Jesus Christ, over and over and over, we're reminded that this good news is now true. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 14.17 The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15.13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. Loved ones, the, the only place peace, real peace, is available. It's through Jesus Christ. That's why He came. It was promised to come through Him. And when He was on earth, He paid for it with His own body on the cross. And He did all that was necessary that we might be reconciled and brought back into right relationship with God. And therefore, He alone, He alone, Christ alone can communicate peace to our souls. Christ alone can effectually speak these words, peace be to you. And when you have that peace, that kind of peace, even when you're facing life shattering experiences, circumstances, catastrophic illness, financial hardships, relational brokenness that just just never seems to resolve, you can still experience peace. You can't create it It's based on something that happened. 
It's based on what God did for us through Jesus. He says to us, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And so on this holiday, hear Jesus speak to you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened with your anxieties. Come to me, all who are weighed down with your melancholy. Come to me, all who are restless and empty and your souls are thirsty. Come to me and I will give you peace. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have accomplished. Thank you for that objective accomplishment, a situation that has been now changed, and the pivot point is your sin-atoning death and your resurrection. Now, now the reality is now Real peace is available through you, through what you have done. I pray, God, that you would pour out upon us as we trust you, as we entrust ourselves to what Christ has done for us, that you would fill us. You would fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And may you be exalted in heaven and glorified and exalted on earth through a people who have been transformed from the inside out by a peace that passes all understanding. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.